Hey legends, today I'm catching up with Cub member Dina Tierney, the CEO and founder of Pacific Point. Dina is our only member that lives in Hawaii and Pacific Point is a Salesforce consulting firm with offices in the US, Australia and Singapore. Dina has been recognized as a 40 under 40 entrepreneur and Pacific Point has been an Inc. 5000 fastest growing company three years in a row. Dina shares with us her greatest lessons in international expansion how she stays connected with her international team and creates a common culture that crosses borders, and how she selects the best new markets for her business to enter. Dina is a true expert in technology and expansion. I had a great conversation. Enjoy the show. You have traveled further than any other podcast guest to get here today. So thank you for being here, Dina. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Daniel. <laughs> so you live in Hawaii or when you joined Cub though, you weren't living in Hawaii, were you? Or you I were? was actually, yeah. So um, I started our company. It's headquartered in Honolulu. And um, we had, I guess at the time that I joined Cub, which has been, I was looking at the date, it's from 2018, which is hard to believe, in this uh, OG space, which is great. Um, you know, at that time, I had looked at expanding our business into Sydney, and I had already started. We had some um, Salesforce consultants that work for us that were based out of Sydney. And um, I was spending a lot of time here. I was here probably every four to six weeks or so. Uh, traveling from Honolulu, and I was looking for a home base and a place that I could meet people um, if I needed meeting space. Um, so, Cub oh, so was you a were great expanding thing. to Australia at that point, and Cub yeah. was kind of a great platform for you to do. I didn't know that. Absolutely, yeah. I I don't know why, but I always thought you were from Australia. You joined Cub, and then you moved to Hawaii. Nope, it's the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How well, you can tell by my accent. Yeah, well, that. now, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But um, and 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 so, what made you choose Australia to expand though? Just because yeah. it's another island, and you're like, okay, yeah, right? Fits the um, Hawaii vibe. There was kind of um, a history to that, you know. Um, just for background, our company was founded, as I said, in Honolulu. It's been about eleven years, and we are a Salesforce consulting firm, which means that we provide um, implementation services on the Salesforce platform for our customers, ranging from public sector. Uh, organizations, health and life sciences companies, and, and our third industry is um, financial services. So those are kind of the main industries that we serve. And, um, you know, 11 years ago, we were really focused on the Hawaii market. And so that became an area where we created a nice foundation. It's certainly, I think, what we consider the home of our company. It is truly our headquarters. But we were looking at expansion. And, you know, the Hawaii market is only as big as it is. And so I knew that we needed to look beyond that. And when you look at the U.S. mainland, the what everyone knows is the U.S. mainland, it's pretty saturated with the things that we do. And so I started to look internationally. And, um, and that was when I um, spent some time in Australia, New Zealand, and some other places as well. And um, I came to Salesforce's partner forum, gosh, 2016, 17, somewhere around there, probably 16. In Sydney? In Sydney. And I heard the forecasts for where Salesforce was projecting growth and where there was a need for more Salesforce partners. And given Hawaii's geography to Sydney, it felt like a really great idea for us to start investing in the APAC market. 
Um, so we started with Sydney, and now we also opened up an office in Singapore as well. So, yeah. oh, well, ha- so how long does it take to get from Hawaii? How do you get from Hawaii to Sydney? Is it direct? It's direct. Yeah, it's a, oh, about so a it's ten so hour flight. Easy. Yeah, I didn't know that. Mm. Well, that, and that just seems like a really logical kind of choice. Salesforce is saying, "Hey, we're going to grow in this region." Mm-hmm. You're looking at the U.S. thinking, "Wow, there's a lot of competition here." Yep. Why not grow where there's where there's less competition? It's kind of common sense. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's our, what I was telling you. And, and we speak the same language because I got to say I did look at some other countries, and um, I have to admit I, it would have been a a little bit more of an uphill battle. Um, but given that we all speak English, that was a plus. Same thing with Singapore. Um, so um, I can mostly understand Aussies. I bet ninety nine percent. Yeah. <laughs> and for uh, most uh, for the people that live under a rock. Can you just shed a bit of light on what Salesforce is as well? For sure. Um, It is a cloud-based customer relationship management system, or CRM, as it's known. And really what's what's great about it is it is it, at, at its core it's a cloud-based database right and it has a platform solution that provides all sorts of additional automation reporting and features that you can configure to your specific needs and when you hear the word salesforce a lot of people think oh it's to help my sales teams and that's traditionally what it started off as but as the company's evolved and it's really turned enterprise and it's gone into public sector and huge organizations it really does manage your customer relationship holistically across marketing, sales, and service. So it's truly a, a, a robust solution for any size company. And so when, when did Salesforce start? Oh my God. Should I be quizzing you? I know, right? <laughs> Should I be the, asking that live? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think it's, I want to say it's about 20 years. Okay. So, so it's, it's not, it's not, re, it's not a super old company actually. Mm-hmm. And so when it started, yeah, it obviously was a sales tool. Absolutely. Uh, like a sales CRM, I guess you'd exactly. call it. And, and it's evolved since then. And and like there's a lot of CRMs out there. Um, and some of the, I, I guess some of the ones that people might know, Salesforce is probably the main one, but you've got HubSpot, OneDrive and blah, 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 blah. Why did you choose Salesforce or how did you get involved with Salesforce? Yeah. So um, I st- when I, I'm going to take it way back. Uh, yeah. When I graduated from college, I, I had a degree in information systems. And my first job after college was as a software engineer. And within that first year or so of starting my career, I was um, fortunate enough to start working on CRM technology. So that was enterprise. It was at that time, there there wasn't the concept of cloud. I mean, it, I'm going to date myself, but it was installing software and implementing these robust solutions that would take sometimes years to implement. Um, so I've always been in that space. And um, and then, um, and I, it's funny enough, because I remember being um, at a client site and there was an APAC team as part of this global sales team. And the APAC team, they were from Japan and they said, look, this is what we use today. And it was Salesforce. And we were all kind of laughing in the background because it was so new at that time. And it looked like like a Rolodex. I mean, it was just a little table of, of names and contacts. And like you said, the solutions evolved, it's grown, it's um, truly um, an innovative platform. So for me, when I started the company, I wanted to bring what I knew. And I knew CRM really well, just because I had done it for the large enterprises back in the day. Um, and, you know, while you're, you're right that there are a lot of different technologies in the market, those aren't at the scale that Salesforce can go. And, um, and that's really why I started using it, because it was truly the leader and it can scale from you know small businesses and enterprises all the way to up the to, largest. to the largest. And, and it, but it's interesting what you said in that when you were thinking of starting your business, 
um, you kind of thought, well, what do I know that I could start a business mm-hmm. with? Mm-hmm. You know, and that I, I really think that is like that's certainly how I started. It was kind of like, well, what do I know? I wasn't educated. I didn't go to college, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I know business owners. I know them well. I'm going to just start something for them. But, like, I think that's just a very a good question for anyone wanting to start a business. Well, what do you know or what are you passionate about? Just start on that. And, and that's essentially what you did. Where are you from? You're not from Hawaii, are you? Um, I grew up in Texas mostly, um, and at that time I was living in Dallas. Te- I mean, I grew up in South Texas in San Antonio, and then I lived in Dallas for a number of years, and um, I was living like, um, well, how should I say this? So the consulting lifestyle was you would travel to your client site in the U.S. I don't know if that really happens as much anymore, and I'm not even sure that was really the case in Australia, maybe a little bit, but the big five consulting firms, you'd fly to your client site Monday through Thursday, you'd fly home Thursday night, and you'd be at your home Monday, you know, uh, Thursday, uh, sorry, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And um, I reached a point where I wasn't going home very often to my home in Dallas, so I rented it out, started living like a gypsy, and I was living, I had my big suitcase at the bell captain's closet at the hotel. It was kind of nuts um, and crazy, like looking back on that lifestyle and switching out clothes and taking it to dry cleaning. And, and I had my little one that I would carry with me. And um, I eventually found out about a job in Hawaii. And that's actually what took me to Hawaii. Um, but I'm originally from Texas. Um, I'm dying to go to Texas. I've never been. I'm never going to love it. And, and, and when you said you were consulting at that point, you were consulting for CRM systems. Mm-hmm. And so you'd fly to different uh, businesses and clients and help them set up their CRM. Correct. Okay. So you're already in that space. Yep. I was very familiar with CRM, the consulting business, how, how it works. And you know, what's weird is I, I got a, you know, at at a point in my life and I'll kind of pick back up on that story just to kind of connect a couple dots here. But, um, I found out about a job in Hawaii because I was sort of like, okay, I can't just keep living like a gypsy, found this job. And it was at that job, I wasn't really doing CRM, I was doing enterprise technology and I was leading the program. But it was there that I learned, hey, I have I have the domain knowledge, I have the skill, I know what technology is and how to implement it and what methodology is. But I started to learn leadership and management and operational things that I didn't previously really no, I knew consulting. I knew the business of consulting, but I didn't really know how to run operationally things and how to manage people and um, lead. And so I think that really took me to another level when it came to my skill set. Um, and so when um, I was in Hawaii, I remember actually the, the real reason that I started the company was I saw a gap in our market in the Hawaiian Islands. It's a bit underserved because of its distance. And it's also underserved because of its cost. You know, it's a tourist destination. If you want to travel there for work, it's it's costly for organizations to pay for that. And I felt like there should be someone that would solve that problem and crack that nut. And ultimately, it ended up being, being our you. company. Yeah, Pacific Point. How, yeah. how many Hawaiian islands are there? Um, there's four main ones. And um, then there's just like all, all sorts of other ones. But so your business would focus, I assume you do business on all four of those main Islands. You know, it, most of it is on Oahu, which is the main, um, where basically it's more like a city, um, you know, that is like a typical looking city. <laughs> the other ones are a little more rural, so there's okay. less there's less uh, commercial things there. And, and tell me about living in Hawaii. 
Um, you know what? It's great. It's it has um, a very connected culture. I think people really value their relationships as 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 do Australians. And I think there's similar similarities um, between Australia and Hawaii with a beach culture, outdoor lifestyle. Um, there's a lot to love, and um, yeah, it's it's a great it's a great place, and it's been really good to me, and I'm very thankful for that. But did you ever struggle with um, finding team members, like finding staff that that were in the tech space, in the CRM space? Obviously, it wasn't that present in Hawaii, which was a big reason why you went there. But did that create any staffing problems for you, or how did you build your initial team? It did, and I. You know what? What's interesting is when um, I look back on my career, the first you know, one of the first people I brought into our company at Pacific Point was someone I met at my first job. Um, I met him in Dallas. He lives in Chicago. He was. I it was so funny. I was telling him about this job opportunity, and I said, "Look, um, I'd love for you to come to Hawaii." And he's like, "I'm never leaving Chicago. Chicago's my home. I love it. I love it." I caught him at a time when it was the coldest part of the year. And he's like, he emails me back. It's like, I just got to the office. I rode my bike. My eyes are frozen shut. I'm ready to go to Hawaii. And I'm like, all right. But <laughs> I say that to, to just emphasize that I think our relationships from so far back, you know, had really helped me because he trusted me because we worked together way back when, and I trusted him and knew that he could deliver the results for our customers and um, so, yeah, finding things so you like imported that, them. I, put, I brought some people in and then I started cultivating local because that's a big passion of mine is to develop the next generation and to bring on more of that tech talent. When did you get to the point? Like I know, I know firsthand how hard it is um, uh, having multiple offices. And uh, one thing I don't know, but I've heard from very good friends from Cub is how hard it is having multiple offices in different time zones. Mm. So when did you get to the point or how long did it take until you thought, okay, well, I'm going to expand, I'm going to expand internationally. And how, how did you know you were ready for that as a team and company? Mm -hmm. We had, um, so we had our team in Hawaii, but we also had probably within the first few years, some people in California. So it's, you know, just for geography's sake, that's about a five hour flight. And it's about a two to three hour time difference depending on the time of year because Hawaii doesn't change our clocks. So it makes things confusing. But anyhow, um, so we were kind of quote unquote used to having some different time zones just out of necessity from our distance. Um, and then when I was looking at expanding into Australia, I was really looking at our time zones, which are actually quite favorable. I think it's about three, um, three hours difference right now and a day. I mean, you guys are a whole day ahead, but... We have great overlapping hours um, in terms of our ability to work together. So I think knowing that we could do it in California felt like we could do it somewhere else. And when I saw what Salesforce had said about the projections for growth, I started looking at the talent pool in Australia. And I think there's really great tech talent in Sydney. And I tested the waters and brought on some people and they proved to, and they're actually still with me. And this is like six years later. Um, yeah. Some really great consultants that are based here. And so the company started in 2011 and you got to Australia in 2018? Well, I was uh, before that. I was already kind of testing the water. And 2018 was when yeah. I came to the company. But the, the point I'm trying to make yeah. is it, it, it took, maybe yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, it, took, it was still six years of yep. 
building a solid team where you were yep. and, and, and of course in California before exactly. you kind of got to the point where you're like, I want to expand yep. because expanding is hard. And are there it any is. key lessons that, that you've learned uh, through expansion? Because obviously you've got California, mm-hmm. but you've got Australia, but you also got Singapore mm-hmm. yeah, and expanding is one of the hardest things to do. It are there is. any big fuck ups that happened on, uh, along the way? That <laughs> It wasn't too bad. I mean, um, I think there was some, you know, I don't want to say calculation, but really measuring in, like taking on the amount that you're comfortable with, maybe testing things a little bit like I did with those um, early consultants just to say, okay, let me, let me see how this works out and make sure that I have, um, you know, I, I didn't want to go, I guess what I would say is not going too crazy and just like, you know, hiring 10 people all at once and then hoping for the best. But I think really kind of taking our time to test the waters and make sure that it could work for us. Um, I wouldn't say we had any major mess ups. I think Singapore was tricky because we opened up Singapore in January of 2020 <laughs> and um, put in an offer to somebody and he um, we needed to apply for an employment pass because he was not a Singaporean um, resident, but he was. He ended up leaving the country, uh, meaning he was in Singapore, but he left the country and then he couldn't re-enter because of all the things that happened. So and and and. So what were, I guess, while there were no uh, big issues, what do you think you did well to cause that? So I think you you kind of touched on um, testing, like dipping your toes in Mm. before diving headfirst. Were there any other things you think you did particularly well that others could um, learn from? Yeah, I think visiting and spending time here was really huge. Um, In Singapore too, I spent less time there, but definitely a lot of time here to really make sure that I understood um, the, the talent pool, cause that was important for me as well as the market and what Salesforce was saying, and then actually kind of validating some of those assumptions, um, I think was, was huge. I, I will say I, I also went to New Zealand and I, I, there was a time might've been 2018, 2019, where I thought maybe that will be the springboard. Um, but I spent time there. I spent like a good four or five days and I was like, you know what, Sydney's the right launch pad into this market for me. And so I think spending time testing the waters, I actually even well, brought you, on a consultant from New Zealand too. I tried it. I tested the waters. And I guess you joined Cub mm-hmm. in the lesson there is very much, you, you actually involved yourself in the network of business people. You, you started exactly. meeting people. You got, you know, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that, that I assume in every market would be. Exactly. Yeah, hearing how would people be quite think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Cub is an important part. Learning the local market type of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just such a cool concept. That there's a company, Salesforce, and they grew very large and then they kind of figured out, well, you know what, instead of hiring people to help clients onboard Salesforce into the thing, we should just get people to open their own company so we don't have to pay them or we pay them, I'm sure, a fee or something, whatever it may be. Or then you might license them, you know, <laughs> you, you, they probably make money off the, off the consultants. And they can create – it's like they've created their own economy, little Salesforce economy. It's like, well, instead of hiring people to do that, we will allow people to create their own companies and to use Salesforce as – to sell what we've built, Salesforce, for us mm-hmm. uh, and in turn help us expand and they can make money. And and it's it's just a really cool relationship, isn't it? It really is. It's impressive what they've done and I'm, I'm certainly no spokesman for – or spokesperson for for Salesforce, but I can tell you that I think what 
it allows is them to really focus on innovating their product. So they spend a lot on product. They they acquired Slack, um, gosh, during the pandemic. They've acquired Tableau before that. They're just really, and then they're integrating all these things. And so when they invest in the product and make it so incredibly powerful, they've created this ecosystem around them for people to, to benefit. And so how does it work? Like how does someone become a Salesforce consultant or official Salesforce partner? I'm not sure what it's called. Um, there is, yeah, for, for our company, we're a Salesforce consulting partner. And there's also um, product partners, ISV partners is what they call them. And they'll build product on the Salesforce platform. And then they will, you know, essentially sell those. And then on our end, and both really both sides, you have to go through a bit of a qualification. You have to have certifications. You have to, you know, kind of build out your team to an extent. And where growth really happens, I think, for us is when we see the success with our customers. We help them really achieve, optimize, you know, optimize business processes, um, improve sales and service processes, and that's really where the we start to then grow, right? Because we're doing and delivering those solutions for our customers. And basically, like someone like me would be like, oh, we need a, a CRM system. I don't know how to set up mm. the CRM to make it work for us because I'm uh, technically disadvantaged. <laughs> um, we'd come to uh, you people mm. like you guys and be like, hey, can you please – set up this can you set salesforce up for us mm-hmm. in a way that works for us and so your role in this salesforce ecosystem is very much um to sell so you mm-hmm. i'm assuming you'd have a strong sales um mm-hmm. of the company of, of your company um and to um uh, help shape the system for that particular company yes that's exactly right yeah so our process once we get started with a customer um you know, is to understand what are their challenges, what are they looking to achieve, and then we'll actually map out a process for them and say, okay, great, what are the channels where leads come in, for example? How do you process them within your team? Who gets distributed certain leads? How do you close, right? And so we'll help them map that out and teach them how they could leverage Salesforce the best way, and we actually customize it for them. Um, and it gets more complicated. Like when you're working with government, it's it's portals and how do you take an application and process it internally and then award someone a license or a permit. Um, we have work with the Department of Agriculture in the state. And so there's so many different use cases where they're looking at goods that are imported and regulating them, um, looking for risks. So there's so many unique use cases, but the more traditional one is certainly from lead sales processes, um, servicing, you know, those customers, but touch gosh, points and all that. Yeah. And, and and what's the relationship then with Salesforce? Do they do they sell licenses to people so that so Salesforce will sell a license and then you can be an official Salesforce partner? Um, well, the way that it works is if we identify and say, look, um, Cub, you know, there's a client of ours like Cub that's interested in Salesforce. Salesforce will essentially sell the licenses and we sell the professional services. Um, to become a partner, though, you just have to be credentialized and oh, kind okay. of go through their little accreditation process and okay. onboarding program. And, and so a license, you mean that's to the business. So the business, so Cub would pay for Salesforce and then you guys charge for your services Correct. in terms of onboarding it yes. and setting it up and ongoing maintenance yep. and help. Yep. So there's it's just an incredible ecosystem. Yeah. It is. It's it such really an American is. system too. Like <laughs> just so proficient. It's just so efficient. It's like, you know, let's – I forgot my own rule and started talking away from the mic. But 
but it's just so efficient. It's it like, you know, we should outsource this. Mm. You know, we, we don't need to pay for that. <laughs> In fact, someone else can make money from it. And, and mm. I like what you said. It's, it's what well, we will focus on our product. Mm-hmm. And then other businesses can focus on focus on uh, the sales and implementation of yep. of that product. Exactly. It's just and so, Salesforce, so cool. I should mention they do have their own professional services team too, but they're they uh, you know Salesforce is really careful about saying they're not meant to compete with the partner ecosystem, um, but certainly they do have their own. I would say a big part of it is is definitely the product. That's where they place most of their focus. But sometimes you just you know, as a product vendor, if I was a product vendor too, like you want to have a team that can step in if needed. And so you can't just have a, you know, product that, and no capability to support and implement that. So I get that, but the the larger ecosystem is certainly the partner network. Is there any risk of like other CRM companies coming and trying to poach people like you guys, for example, like your company, like, are they like, would HubSpot come and approach you be like, Hey, you know, I think you guys should be you know, selling HubSpot, not, not, not Salesforce. It, does that happen or that, it's too hard? The transition I think that, to- no, I think that, you know, um, there are some companies who, some consulting firms that might do more than one product. So it's not necessarily, in my case, we're pretty exclusively Salesforce. That's where, that's where we've developed our expertise. That's a product that we believe in. We've seen it do amazing things, but there's definitely, I mean, if you look at a huge company like Accenture, they're going to be using not HubSpot necessarily, but maybe Microsoft and um, other types of technologies. They have a whole range um, within their tool set um, in addition to Salesforce. Okay, so some companies can do multiple. Correct. You guys are specialists. That's I always think specializing is by far the way to go because if I was going to choose a company, am I going to choose the one that f- loves and specializes in Salesforce or mm-hmm. am I going to get the one that does Salesforce, a bit of HubSpot, some yep. Microsoft on the side to, to do sales? You know, I'd rather the specialist. I just think it's such an advantage, particularly for like a boutique-style mm. company that, you know, that hasn't got – I mean, you do have offices everywhere, but, but you know, one of those mega consultants. Yep. And tell me, as a leader, how do you manage – to be present for all the offices and how do you manage to maintain your culture? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's not just cross offices, but literally cross continents. Mm-hmm. It, it's a good question. We do a number of things. I think first of all, um, we established values for our system or for our company. And so the values that we have, I, I really resonate with an athlete's mindset Um, I think it's a great way to problem solve. I think it's a great way to approach any challenge that you have in your life and in business. And so we created several values and we've established those for our company. Things like play as a team, play to win, right? And so um, establishing the values that everyone across the enterprise, you know, regardless of their location would know. Um, We have a monthly all hands meeting that's timed uh, for one hour. The, the, Earliest people are in Singapore. I think they're getting up at about 6 a.m., which is pretty early. And then our latest is our Denver team and their our Texas team, and they're coming on at, I don't know, it's probably like 4 or 5 their time. I can't remember. So that's, it's, we found a moment where everyone could just come online once a month. And then we recognize those values across the enterprise. So regardless of where your location is, we say, hey, who's going to get the value shout out for the month? And we do that. Um, and then I also have monthly 15-minute one-on-ones with everyone at our company. And it takes an enormous amount of time, but it helps me make sure that someone doesn't feel too distant 
you know, definitely during the pandemic, it was so hard because we were used to like, hey, come on down to Hawaii. Like, let's, you know, get together. We have one big annual trip a year now where I invite everybody. But before that, you know, we would try to have people come in from our Colorado team, um, California, and even Australia. We invite them to come out to be in Hawaii. But we started to feel disconnected because the the thing just progressed. I mean, it was like you thought it was going to be over in three months and it was like another six and then another six and then like a year passes and then another year and you're like, oh my God. So we we established those values for that reason um, so that we could create a commonality between all of us and then we established the one-on-ones. I, I just think what's great too is that you have a clear systemized answer to that question, you know, like that, that, that and that is a solution to that. Mm-hmm. Tell me, with your 15-minute one-on-one, so I've, I've, we've tried implementing, well, I've tried implementing, my, implementing myself one-on-ones with the entire team throughout the, throughout the years and I, I failed. But but <laughs> I did. But now I do them. But is a bit more spontaneous at this point in time. Yep. But um, uh, I'd love to hear what you actually speak. I think fifteen minutes is perfect. Mm-hmm. That's long enough. I, I assume you jump on the phone or on Zoom. Zoom. I, I, the phone I reckon is always easier. But but what, what do you actually talk about? What, what, what's the what's the purpose of the of the conversation? Well, for me, I want to just hear from them, and I'm picking up on what I can try to pick up and pick up on and I'll try to dive in where needed. And it's so, it's kind of cool because every person's a little bit different when they have a minute, that 15 minutes with me about what they want to tell me. Sometimes they're like, oh, okay, these are the projects I'm working on. It's it's like, okay, that's cool. Other people will be like, yeah, this is going on in my life. You know, oh yeah, I'm moving or I'm, you know, whatever my, something's going on with my dog. Um, but I like to ask them like, hey, how are things in your world? Some people feel the need to just tell me about their project work and some people, you know, will tell me other stuff. And so I leave it a little bit up to them. If there's time at the end of it, I always just remind them like this is a time that I just want to hear from you. I want to, you know, um, answer questions like if you're talk because we also have regional managers, by the way, which is another point uh, in our methodology but if there's questions coming up from your regional manager, if there's a question coming up from the all hands, if you have a, you know, a frustration point, a, a, a anything, like this is a chance that you have to, to talk to me about it. Um, and I hear all kinds of things, people wanting to relocate, you know, I, hear, I mean, all kinds of topics come up. Can I come to Hawaii? <laughs> yeah. Oh but yeah, that's they, you. <laughs> I, you know, I think so, uh, what I love most about that anyway, is that you do have it, it's quite it's just a casual flexible conversation. You're really just talking to them. It's just a phone call. Let's mm-hmm. just see what we talk about. I, I always, um, uh, th- that's how we, we do it or I do it uh, when I when we do have those conversations. We tried the more structured element, but I just think it takes away from the actual human connection. Mm-hmm. That, that just, Let's just talk and be friends. Mm-hmm. Like let's just bond. I just want to know what's going on in your life and share with you what I'm doing and what's going on in my life. I really think just yeah. opening that, that ability for a relationship between the owner and, 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 and the team is that that's key. And having that even just 15 minute mm-hmm. organic conversation, it, it, it gives you real insight into, I mean, in, you know, when you have a business, it's kind of like you've got your own little empire and you need to know what's happening, uh, you know, over here in this uh, part of the empire and what's mm-hmm. it and, and, you know, the issues going on over here. You, you really mm-hmm. do somehow need to have your eyes and ears everywhere. And I find that just by having a, some, a relationship and open communication, exactly what you're describing mm-hmm. with with your team, I even think monthly is, is, is a lot. 
because um, I could imagine that that would take up a, a lot, lot of your time. Like, so you obviously value that or you obviously prioritize that I definitely highly. prioritize it. And I will say that, you know, it's not like, you know, sometimes the schedule moves around and everybody does their thing. But by doing it with some measure of consistency, um, you know, every month, I'm able to pick up on something feels a little off with so-and-so today, mm. right? And like, hopefully they're okay. Maybe they're just stressed because of something going on in their project. And, you know, it just helps me even raise it to the managers and just be like, hey, keep an eye on so-and-so. They kind of seemed a little bit stressed. Are they okay with their projects, you know? So by having that measure of consistency, I'm able to pick up on some things that I probably otherwise would not. Mm. And with the regional managers, mm -hmm. would you typically – uh, promote someone within the company to regional management or would you look outside? Generally, I look inward. I look at our team. Um, you know, we have a company culture that, um, you know, I worked in corporate and you can get lost, right? You're, you can be crushing it, but no one sees it. And so you have to have corporate know-how to create visibility within an enterprise. Um, one of the things when I started the company was I want people to know that they're recognized for the work that they do and it's not overlooked, right? We see it and we're going to do something about it. So usually I'm bringing up people within our company first and foremost. I mean, I would say when I say usually, I mean like I can't even think of anybody I didn't <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm saying that. Um, and I think they know like, hey, if I prove myself, like I have an opportunity here. And um, so, yeah, I have a regional manager in Denver, one in Hawaii, and then one in Sydney. Yeah, the, the reason I ask is because it, it's very risky bringing in an external manager because mm. then the internal people are like, well, who's, who's this lady? Mm -hmm. Who's this guy? Mm -hmm. Why are they here for? I, I know more about this company than they do. You know, and I, I just think that would – we've never done – oh, sorry, we did do that once. Did not work out. Really? Um, yeah. Um, you can ask Laura about that. But, but um, actually, I've, we've done it twice, but one was the very start, even before you, Laura. Um, and Laura's been maybe, see how long, a cup? Five, five and a half years, so even before that. But, um, but yeah, it never works out. And I, 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 I really do believe, particularly with um, smaller companies um, like ours in that they're not corporate, one of the key things you want to show people is that, hey, there is big, there's, we're growing and you're part of that growth. You're mm -hmm. part of that opportunity. And just by doing, you know, by lifting one person up or multiple people up, it shows everybody else like, wow, like you can, we, I can grow with this company. I can be lifted up and they're not going to just bring someone from the outside and bang, here, you look over that. But, you know, it's, it's about lifting who we have higher. Absolutely. Um, and, and Morale goes up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just think bringing someone in, in, in my experience, and I'm sure in bigger companies it might be different, but in, in my experience, bringing someone in to look down is is it, it could it just could cause a little bit of that politics, which in a smaller business often you, you know you want to I mean you don't want to have it like it shouldn't be there, and if that comes in, that people start oh you know I hate that person like you know let's not do what he says or she says, and so I I, I agree with you in that sense is, is lifting. Lifting great team members up. And how would you choose to lift? Would it be the best performer, the best culture fit? Would it be? Well, I think that um, it's both. I I think what's interesting is I sometimes, I, I really hope, and I, I hope that, that our team see, knows that 
they're really always being interviewed or evaluated for some new opportunity. And we've said that to our team too, like, hey, we are on continuous growth. The company we were six months ago, a year ago is not who we are. And there's opportunity that's going to continue to be available. And so I think when people start to see that or know that, hopefully they they feel like they're always interviewing. It was, there was um, a woman that I heard that she was in a job actually at Salesforce for six years that she got this huge promotion and she's like, oh my God, I can't believe you gave me this job. And they're like, you've been interviewing for it for six years. You didn't know it. So when you prove yourself day in and day out and you create a culture where that's valued and important, hopefully, um, yeah, that that is um, a fit. But for me, it's, it's both. You know, you've got to have a good culture fit um, and then you've got to be... Um, that culture fit probably first and foremost, and then definitely your performance. I I got taught something that, um, last year. So we were doing um, some work with a lady from Harvard Business School called Janae. And uh, our members were like doing a program with them. And uh, I was part of the program. And one uh, one of the things, I can't remember which lesson it was on, but was who who do you make the bo- the manager like who who do you promote and they were saying that often what people companies do is they promote the best performer but that's not necessarily the best option and that what you should be looking for is uh, who manages themselves the best and so that's one half and the other half is who manages their relationships with others the best and so, and I just thought that was a really, I'd never thought of it like that because I would have been the person that promotes the, the best performer. Mm. But when you start thinking about it, it's like, well, that makes sense because if they're managing themselves the best, they're going to be able to manage others the best and, and, and show others how to do it. And if their relationships with others are strong, they're going to be a good leader mm-hmm. as opposed to the person who's the best performer. You know, they might be stepping on other toes or they might not care about others and just focus solely on themselves. And, and you know, like it, it, it really is obvious when you think about it like that. That's true. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. yeah. We've been lucky, I think, with the with the guys on the team um, and hiring them at the right times. And what about uh, with uh, – sorry, I've been meaning to ask you after each question. I keep forgetting. Pacific Point. I, I'm sure there's an easy explanation for the name and something to do with the Pacific, but but <laughs> how did you come up with that name? What does it mean? Oh, gosh. I'm um, – you know what? I'm going to be speaking at the International Women's Day thing um, from Cub on Friday, and I'll be telling the story in more detail. But this is crazy. 11 years ago, I came to Sydney, Australia for the very first time. I was here um, on holiday. I had like kind of a long holiday weekend. I think it was September. And um, I knew that I was going to be starting the company, but I hadn't yet come up with a name. I liked Pacific because we're in the Pacific, right? Makes sense. Makes sense. Had some other words mixed in and different flavors, and I didn't have the name settled. I go on this, um, in Sydney Harbor, they have these these boat tours. Go around on this um, boat tour, and the tour guide's amazing, and he's like, you know, explaining everything you're seeing, the the bridge, the Sydney Opera House, and all the cool stuff, including, uh, oh, here's Blue Blues Point, and here's... A uh, bottle and glass. I don't know. I'm, I'm saying them wrong. Yeah. But it was like there were so many points. And I was like, that's it. It's Pacific Point. And weirdly, I think there actually is a point <laughs> called Pacific Point. But uh, that's how it That's how it. I love it. Be. I think so it's a really sexy name. My connection to Sydney is um, very, very strong. fundamental. Yeah. And, and the women's um, uh, community, like it, it's a Women's Day event, is it? Yes. It comes doing. That's at our HQ. So you're actually going to see our new 
can't and wait. You are, I'm fairly certain it is. Don't quote me on that. I'm but I got sure. told yeah. it was because I like working on the, the – there's a – the very top level has a beautiful rooftop balcony and things and that's okay. where I've been hiding lately. So you, you guys it. are hijacking my office. <laughs> but, but, no, it'll be, it'll be spectacular. Cool. And when setting up a company in the U.S. Um, – sorry, you've set up companies in both the U.S. and Australia. Yes. Is there a difference in ease of starting a company? Is the US easier than Australia or, or vice versa? Um, I think in the US, just starting um, was pretty easy. Uh, in Australia, I would say I ended up hiring a you know a, an accounting firm, if you will, to kind of get me set up and going. I don't know how complicated it would have been if I tried to do it on my own, but um, I think that that was necessary for me being a foreigner that I needed to have someone else like help me through that process and navigate. Um, I also leveraged, um, so I met in the U.S., our U.S. export services, which is part of our federal government, and that's actually how I got connected to a lot of other countries and I met the, um, there's a guy here, he's an Aussie, but he works for the the U.S. Embassy, I guess, but he does the international trade. And so he introduced me to um, some accounting firms, to lawyers for international, like, business law. And so those are the relationships that I leveraged early on to get our legal entity set up here. And what, if someone wanted to expand to the States, do you have any tips on doing that and how to do that? Yeah. From Australia? Yeah. Well, you know what? I have an interesting thing for you. When I met with um, uh, that same person that I was talking about from the U.S. Embassy here, he was telling me that the city of Denver in Colorado um, has been recruiting quite heavily Aussie companies when they're looking at expanding to the U.S. Instead of going to the Bay Area, which was the traditional mindset, like, oh, I got to go to the Bay, South Bay, San Francisco, all of that. Um, that the city of Denver in Colorado has been actively recruiting for the last couple of years. Um, and when I met with the econ dev person for city of Denver just recently, she told me, and I can't remember the stat, I want to say 60 to 70% of the businesses, the international businesses that decide to open up their U.S. presence um, come to Denver. So 70% are from Oz. I'm sorry, I got, got that stat wrong. 60 to 70% of those international businesses are from ANZ or ANZ, as you say. And so the others are Canada, you know, places in Europe, blah, blah, blah. It's 60 to 70%. How interesting though. And what, why are they going to Denver? I, Other than they, they're asking them to come. Yeah. Yeah. They're recruiting quite heavily. And I think they're, they're making the hard sell on lifestyle, on the talent pool. Um, it's, you know, it's, um, time zones are also not too, too bad. Right. So West coast was kind of the traditional California area, but now you're about an hour in. And so, you know, I think people have found that to be more suitable. Some people felt like the Bay Area was too high strong for them. There's too much intensity. The Bay Area, that's like San, San Fran. And, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. I went there once. I, I, I thought I was going to get stabbed. I actually <laughs> did. That's the only time. And I've grown up overseas. I've been everywhere. The only time I've ever felt like, oh, shit, like I'm actually feel scared mm -hmm. was in San Francisco. It's supposed to be one of the richest cities. I was walking around. It was like it was, everywhere you go, it was just like you people coming up to you and they've got things in their hand and you're just free. It was the scary – I don't want to go back. It's the scariest place I've ever been. Yeah. It, and everybody's fleeing San Francisco. Are and, they? Yeah. yeah I don't doubt fleeing. it, but yeah. I ran out of there. 
Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of them are heading to places like Denver, Colorado. But yeah, I was just blown away by that and how um, the Australian business, she told me like every week there's a new Aussie business that's kind of got wow. that coming in. So, and we have an office in Denver and that's how I know that. And actually our Denver office is part of what they call AusDev. So there's all these Aussie companies that have relocated, like not relocated, but started their U.S. presence. Wow. There. I wonder how they can, who they should contact for that. Um, Just call uh, up Denver. Hey, yeah, I want to come so, in. Um, City of Denver economic development. I have the contact information. I actually just connected um, one of my friends here. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Oh, well, that, it's just good for people to know. Absolutely. Well, we do have to wrap up, but one thing that I wanted to ask was your business is a 1% pledge business. What does that mean? Yeah. So we, we are a proud member of the pledge 1% movement. It's a movement where companies make a commitment to um, donating 1% of time, 1% of equity, or 1% of product um, into the community um, for whatever their cause is. And in our case, we are um, committed to 1% of our time giving back to youth and encouraging them to pursue careers in technology. It's very near and dear to my heart, particularly with young girls. We've done different programs, mentorship programs with, um, you know, fourth fifth and sixth graders. Um, we've done college age programs. And so um, that's what that's all about. And so our team can get involved. I do too. And we, we commit to providing that time back to the communities where we operate. Because actually when you, I mean, as a young woman in technology, particularly when you were first starting, uh, it would have been less prevalent mm-hmm. women in tech in um, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whenever, it whatever was. it was. It definitely was. Was that hard for you or... So you're um, like, fuck it, I'm still yeah. going to kill it. Yeah, I mean, you, you think about it more um, when you walk into a room and you're the only woman and there's like an entire room of guys talking about technology and, um, you know, you, you, you feel it, yeah. Um, but I think if you know your stuff, you know, you can get by, you can do your thing. And so, um, and I think now things have changed. Like Salesforce, careers in Salesforce didn't exist, you know, when I was in college. And so, and technology is always changing. So when we can educate young girls and, and, and women and tell them, you don't have to be a coder. You know, Salesforce is declarative programming. So Salesforce has people that do user training. They just do testing. They do sales. I mean, there's so many jobs in the tech space, um, as you pointed out with Salesforce and, and its ecosystem, there's a ton of opportunities for anyone. And that's a very good point. If, 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 if you don't want to do develop like dev, like mm. I wouldn't want to do dev, <laughs> you, know, you can still be in the tech space. Yep. You know what I mean? It, 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 there's so many different opportunities there. Uh, anyway, exactly. you're amazing. Thank you so oh, much for you. coming on today. Thank you for having um, me. And to our incredible listeners, if you want to get in contact with Dina or find out more favorite books, biggest lessons, recommendations, and things like that, you can go to at no, not at Club United Business. You can go to club.club forward slash podcast and you'll find it all there. If you want to uh, catch up with Cub on social media, it's at Club United Business on Instagram. It's equally as awesome. Tina, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the show.